Welcome to the ETAP Podcast, a service of the American Association of State Highway and Transportation Officials. Each month, we'll provide information and insight into environmental issues important to state transportation officials. Thanks so much for joining us here on Ashto's ETAP Podcast. My name is Bernie Wagenblast. During our four-part series on equity, we focused on transportation professionals' work toward building an equitable transportation system. We've spoken to Keith Baker, the Executive Director of Reconnect Rondo, Tamika Butler with Tamika Butler Consulting, Joshua Phillips, Communications and Public Relations Coordinator with the Alabama Department of Transportation, and various attendees of the inaugural Reconnecting Communities Summit in St. Paul, Minnesota. Today, we conclude our series from the Ashto 2023 Annual Meeting as we speak with guests and attendees from all over the country. Our guests today join us from the audience and the panel of the annual meeting knowledge session titled Stop, Look, Listen, Engaging Communities to Put Equity into Action. We ask them questions about their immediate thoughts and reactions following the session. We also get their perspective and opinion on what equity is in transportation. Our first guest is Tanya Smith. She's the director for the Office of Civil Rights in the North Carolina Department of Transportation. So, Tanya, tell me a little bit about what you're doing in North Carolina, how it's a little bit different from maybe some of what other states are doing. Sure. So in North Carolina, uh, we're doing a lot to advance civil rights and equity, realizing that they're similar, but they're different. Uh, they're more expansive, and that, but they intersect with one another. The four pillars that we focus on in North Carolina are, well, supplier diversity, mm-hmm. environmental justice, workforce development, and most important, equal employment opportunity. One of the strategies that we use is we recognize that as equity leaders, we cannot do all the work. So I formulated a strategy called Allyship Collective, Mm -hmm. in which it's a curation of strategic partnerships. We go community by community to offer support, working with diverse populations across the state of North Carolina as one of many of the initiatives that we have. We also have an opportunities tour That's more of an outreach-centered approach. So we looked at geographic diversity and how small businesses can work and participate in DOT projects in their relative communities. So that's part of our environmental justice strategy as well. Mm -hmm. But also we have a workforce development strategy. It's called Emerging Talent. So Emerging Talent is built off the concept that We all have talents and skills. Sometimes it's upskilling workforces, it's creating a curriculum for clean energy, for jobs around in a sector that's being uh, developed. We have a full immersion strategy with our Office of HBCU, Historically Black Colleges and Universities, our civil rights unit I'm part of, and also human resources. One of the things I know that you're involved with is dealing with tribal communities. Tell me a little bit about that, if you would, please. Yes, so I'm really excited about the strategic partnerships that we're working with to target uh, different populations that have historically not been represented in DOT projects. So that would be working with our uh, Native American populations. In our state, we refer to them as American Indian per their preference. Um, I work with an Office of Indian Affairs which is a collection of different tribal leaders and organizations, um, several board members. So we create this partnership around planning and workforce development and disadvantaged business enterprise outreach. But we bring our synergies together to identify what are the areas that are important to them. It's their voice. 
I'm more of the vehicle to help them achieve some of their goals. As you know, many tribes are not recognized. So in North Carolina, we have one federally recognized tribe, but we have many more tribes that are state recognized. So I work with them to bridge those resources that we have internally to build meaningful and what we call equitable outcomes. It's been a very successful partnership. We work with the tribal leaders, the chiefs, we go to the reservations, and we build and tailor the needs that they're looking for. So we do on-site job interviews, we have procurement professionals that go out, we bring uh, contracting opportunities, we bring all staff that's uh, pertinent to the conversation. We have our division of highway staff that's there that can tell them on the spot what are the contract opportunities available today, ready to go. And we find that it's been very successful. Mm -hmm. One of the things that you sometimes hear about with any organization, mm -hmm. they talk about things being siloed. Yes. And departments of transportation is one silo, you could say. I'm curious, how do you work with other state agencies to accomplish a lot of the work that you're trying to do? Yeah, so in North Carolina, we have several strategic partnerships. I have an agreement with our Department of Administration to deliver business development and workforce development solutions and recognize that need. I work with our Department of Commerce on workforce uh, solutions, but also a lot of the solar and wind opportunities that are coming through IIJA or the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law to identify what are the opportunities there. But something that's really uh, close to my heart is community resilience in the form of disaster recovery, disaster rep preparedness. What we do know is that historically, uh, different communities, I, I would refer to them diverse communities, are impacted differently with storms. So I'm part of an interagency task force to help identify small businesses that are ready, willing, and able, but also look at the historical impacts of those who are usually you know, more vulnerable to different uh, hurricanes or mudslides because all uh, disasters look differently and they affect populations differently. So that's just some of a few things. But most important, the newest relationship that I have that I learned is so valuable is my information technology group. So we're working together, it's a separate state agency, to work with transportation equity in the face of AI and automation, cloud-based services. So one of the tasks that I had early on with my leadership is they asked me, could we use technology for equity? And I said, yes, allow me to be a pilot for some of the initiatives that we could do. So rethinking how to use data. We know DOTs love to have a lot of data, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. So how do we aggregate that data to create models, to create uh, use cases, to solve some of the most challenging problems like language access, ADA accessibility, American with Disabilities Act, um, but also things like issues for elderly, the, uh, the blind uh, population that we know is here, the hard to hearing population. So how do we use AI for things like that to analyze a path through an airport? How do we utilize that to determine self-driving vehicles and how to aid the traveling public? Those are new considerations, mm -hmm. but also things like warning systems engages on our public accommodations on our roads, because we know that giving people advanced warning 
in the wake of a storm can save lives. It will save lives, not can save lives, it will. So using AI to really analyze and make deep learning um, and dive really deep into decision-making is really a powerful tool. So AI is a very powerful data tool for equity professionals, but also creating dashboards and visualizations is also important. I can only imagine what my mind will allow me to imagine, mm -hmm. but AI allows me to imagine what I can't imagine, mm -hmm. right? To think things through. Someone told me recently, you know, you can hire a thousand more people to do your work, or you can try a smart intelligence solution like AI to go that much further and have a 10x a multitude. Mm -hmm. So those are some of my really um, exciting partnerships that I have, and it's all done working with other state agencies. Next, I spoke with Michael Bryant. He's the director of the Civil Rights Division of the Texas Department of Transportation. I grew up in the 1960s, and in the 1960s, the talk was about civil rights. Much more recently, equity has become a term. How do you describe, Michael, the relationship between equity and civil rights? For me, I think civil rights is the foundation of where we are today with equity. I think equity is, is taking those foundational principles from the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the fight for equality and justice, and figuring out new ways to implement those principles into all things that we're doing at departments of transportation across the country. I think for me at the Texas Department of Transportation, where I'm the director of the Civil Rights Division, we have had multiple opportunities to experience fights over Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, uh, where people have complained about our projects and what they're doing to their communities, including environmental impacts and, and other things. And we're at a point now where I think that while we might resist the notion that we did something in a discriminatory manner, we know that what when the highway system was built, it destroyed communities intentionally, and those communities have long-lasting impacts, such as why schools aren't funded the way they should be, why access to health care isn't what it is, why access to food is different. Transportation options are different for those people, depending on where you were on the side of the highway. You know, it's, it's the age-old principle of, you know, which side of the tracks are you on? And so we know that communities of color have, have experienced more of being on the wrong side in terms of resources. And now we see as we are working through projects in Houston and Corpus Christi, Austin to El Paso, we are dealing with issues that include how do we make sure people are finding housing? How are we working with those who are unhoused um, and not only getting them into stable housing, but then what can we do to get them employment? What can we do to get them other assistance? And so I think we're at a point where regardless of calling it equity, whether there are political motivations to not use the word equity and diversity and inclusion, I think civil rights will always be there because, again, it is that foundation. And I think we have the ability to do something that uh, perhaps people haven't thought about. I think for me, it's, it's being in a position where we have the freedom to be creative. We talk about innovation and transportation, and most of that involves technology. And a lot of it's the simple things. It's listening and not just listening to people uh, when we do public meetings. But taking that input, working it through just like we would any other input to, to make a change to a project, but also letting people know why their ideas may not have worked, and then figuring out ways that you can kind of shape projects in a way that, that may incorporate some of their elements, may not be all, but if, when you explain it to them, most people appreciate it in a way because I don't think we've always acted like a good neighbor or partner. All of our employees work in Texas and live in Texas, and so 
we are a product of the, the things that we build and maintain. And there's no reason that we should want to build something to harm someone or have negative impacts. Unfortunately, some of those things are inevitable when you have to relocate a business or a home. But giving people the opportunity that the loss is lessened by the things that we can do to help make sure that they come out as close to being in the same place, if not better, than where they were before we started working on a project in their area. It goes without saying, Texas is a big state. A lot of the talk sometimes looks at urban areas. How do you work with civil rights in different parts of the state that maybe are more rural or have different needs from urban centers like a San Antonio, Austin, Houston, Dallas, et cetera? Um, I think population changes are, are a big thing in Texas. Um, you know, Now we're a state of over 30 million people. I believe we have five of the 13 biggest cities in the country, the ones that you named. And so we're at a point where there is, is clearly a divide between the rural areas and the urban areas. Um, and so I think part of it is how people address, again, equity or I don't have as much as someone else has. People have to understand it. It's we focus on race and, and, and other factors because those are some of the historical things um, that have impacted us. But in those rural areas, um, I think on a socioeconomic level, some of the same things come into play. And I think that um, in my view with the rural areas, when we focus on the socioeconomic and especially on the economic impacts, there is a greater understanding of we should have the same benefits like other people. And so how do we make sure that you know the roads that come bring economic development, bring change? But when we look at our workforce development programs and we talk about you know kids that may grow up on a farm or a rural area who are learning how to ride a tractor at 10 and operate it because they're part of the family business, we've looked at, you know, we're gonna build a project through a certain area. How can we get some of those kids when they're in high school and the appropriate age to use some of those skills, not necessarily to leave agriculture as a primary foundation of their family, but earn some other income by working on projects as they come through as, you know, I don't want to call it part-time, but it's a, it's a temporary thing because the project will come and go. Um, and so using those skills and figuring out again, you know, the highway system is, is about moving people and goods through the state. And so there are opportunities for everybody and it's just up to us to try to figure it out. And plus as our, as our major metropolitan areas grow, some of those rural areas start to decrease because we start to turn them into subdivisions and apartment complexes and other things to support a growing population. Gloria Jeff was wearing two hats at the annual meeting. She is the livability director for the Minnesota Department of Transportation, and she also serves as the chair of Ashno's Equity Task Force. Gloria, one of the things that you talked about during the session is how the conversation has changed. You talked about the interstate highways in the 1950s and 60s as those were being designed and starting to be developed mm -hmm. and how that has changed to today. How do you think it might change in the future? Can you look at your crystal ball and give me some thoughts as to where you think it might evolve? My crystal ball is always a little foggy, <laughs> but in the 1950s, it was about how do we get our war veterans back to work? And that was the really sort of rationale. I mean, yes, we talked about the interstate defense system. At the end of the day, President Eisenhower had an employment issue and he wanted to put people to work. Fundamental role of infrastructure, ongoing role of highway roads and streets is this issue of getting people to and from work. And that was what we were doing in the 1950s. In the 1990s, Congress declared victory. We had built 
a comprehensive transportation system as a nation, not just the highway roads and streets, but a comprehensive transportation system. So the question was, well, what do we do now? We no longer have as our driving reason to be the construction of highway roads and streets to go from border to border and coast to coast. So then the challenge was, well, let's pick up this multimodal piece. The system that we built is getting old. We need to preserve and protect it. As I look forward, we will still have to preserve and protect what we've constructed. But the changing role of transportation agencies is going to be, how do we impact people? How do we impact the economy in ways that those folks understand? And more fundamentally, we were building a system that we knew people wanted because we said so. In the future, it's going to be, what do you want? Where do you want to go? Why do you want to go there? Whether it's the manufacturer of the little small mugs that the kids have to have, or you are a manufacturer of a transportation vehicle. And so that's where I see the future going. It's going to be much more focused on not what we as transportation professionals think the needs are, but rather the interaction with the public that says, here are the needs that we have. How are you going to help us meet them? How do you think we make sure that we are getting a representative sample from people of where they want to go and how they want to get there, that we're not just hearing from the loudest voices, that we're hearing from the people that maybe tend to be quieter and still have some needs that have been unmet? It's intentional. We have to be intentional. When, for example, right now in Minnesota, we are looking at a challenge where we're looking at alternatives around a reconstruction or replacement or we have a roadway that is old that can no longer be patched. And so what do we do? And we want to reconnect a community that was harmed in the original construction. Yes, we have surveys out there. Yes, we are holding public meetings. We are going to wherever folks are. But we're also looking at the information, who's providing us the information, and where we know we're not hearing from voices that are representative of the folks who live along there. We are not simply saying, well, we gave you the opportunity. We are now saying, we're going to go back in and find another entree point to make sure that we hear from you. And recognizing that some of it may be because they don't trust us. It's sorting through how do we make sure that they not only give us input, but that we show them how we used it. Trust is something that's built up over years. It's mm-hmm. not something that you snap your fingers and you suddenly have trust. Exactly. How do you maintain that trust? How do you build that trust so that it is long-lasting? Because people change in terms of the government. The faces that were there one year are not necessarily going to be there 10 years from now. Mm-hmm. And to make sure that there's continuity from one group of employees at the state DOT to the next? It's by holding within that agency the fundamental value of we do what we say we would do. If we say we're going to seek your input, tell you how we used it, then we do that. And it doesn't matter who the face is because we built it into the culture of the organization. And people learn to trust us when we consistently do that over a long period of time. We can lose trust quickly by not doing that Regaining it is a more pragmatic approach, doing what we say we're going to do. One of the other points that you talked about was remaining life versus useful life. Mm -hmm. Explain that, if you would, please. The difference is that in the asset management world, as we talk about 
how many remaining years of life is in this asset? How long before it will no longer serve the function that it was designed to do? And we put together preservation curves and we do work to make sure that no asset that the DOT owns is not useful for the original function. That's the asset management piece. And that talks about the remaining years. The useful life piece has to do with how long is this thing going to be useful? If it is a bridge over a waterway that is the primary route to get from one side of the river to the other, its useful life and its remaining life are tied together. If the issue is we built a series of at-grade crossings so that the railroad could go through to a particular manufacturing site or production site, and that has now closed, why do we still have those crossings? Yes, the remaining life may be fairly small, but its useful life has expired. Tell me, from your perspective, what is equity and why does it matter? I know different people may have different definitions when it comes to equity. Equity is at the core for transportation. We are about providing opportunities to everybody. And the reality is the level of effort that it takes to give everybody those same kinds of outcomes may vary. And equity is about how do we make sure that everybody has those opportunities for outcomes. And it matters because if I want to work for a living and where I want to work has a bus route that goes there, but the openings are on second shift and I can get there at the start of the shift, but I can't get home because the bus stopped running Mm -hmm. and I don't make enough so that I can Uber or Lyft and the company is determined that they're not going to run uh, a subscription service for employees in a particular location, then the system doesn't work for me. I don't have access to that opportunity. Our final guest on this episode is Angela Barry Roberson. She's the senior advisor to the Office of Civil Rights in the U.S. Department of Transportation. Angela, why are you here at this annual meeting representing USDOT? Thank you for asking. Our industry partners are very important to USDOT. Of course, our Federal Highway is our partner as it relates to highways, but our state DOTs and those that deal with state funding are very important. And of course, civil rights and equity is a key element of that. And that's what we're responsible for on behalf of the secretary and in the department. And so we just wanted to make sure that we're here to listen and to make sure that we can support whatever the states need as it relates to guidance, as it relates to training, as it relates to just hearing the great things that are going on or where we can support to make things easier. Angela, you talked about why it's important for USDOT to be here. Tell me about the Secretary's commitment to equity, please. Absolutely. Director Irene Marion is our Director of Civil Rights for the Secretary. And in order to show and demonstrate that commitment, the Secretary has actually instituted an advisory committee on transportation equity. In fact, Secretary Anthony Fox is the chair, and Roger Millar is an active member of that committee. And so with that committee, we're hearing from the states. We're hearing from, you know, community leaders as well as, you know, other modes to hear about how equity can be 
better integrated into the industry. And so with that commitment, what better way is making sure that it's not just the responsibility of the Office of Civil Rights, but it's the responsibility of the community, of the states, and of course, of USDOT. So we are excited to be committed to this and, and support equity as it relates to our industry. Thanks so much for joining us here on Ashto's ETAP podcast. My name is Bernie Wagonblast, and we'll be back next month with a new episode.